Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Jackson from the Professional Series. Welcome to round three of three. We are interviewing financial planners, and today I've got Patrick Fogarty from the private office in New Zealand. I really like the story these guys tell. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have Patrick on the podcast, and let's crack into it. Patrick, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. So, uh, we were connected um, basically through LinkedIn. I literally was doing some research on interesting financial planning businesses in New Zealand because I wanted to have voice from our cousins to the east, and you guys have the most fantastic online presence, uh, and I wanted to get you on the podcast. So, thanks so much for, for being here. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the, uh, the comments. So let's kick it off. On the razor edge, what is it that you specifically do and how do you help people? Well, I guess really simply put is, um, you, you know, we help successful families um, structure their financial affairs really in order to achieve their objectives, their lifestyle and financial objectives, be they short-term objectives or, or long-term ones. How do you specifically do that? Well, I think one of the things that sets apart a little bit is that we, we tend to work with a small number of families, um, typically quite successful families. And so the approach we take has to be very bespoke to the individual family we're dealing with. Um, I guess the tools of the trade, the fun, fundamental tools of the trade, uh, kind of advanced financial planning, um, really kind of deep financial planning, um, you know, sort of coaching, but but ultimately, you know, all backed by a very high quality sort of academically driven investment uh, philosophy and process. Right. So if I was listening to this podcast and I was considering picking a, an advisor, would you say that I should be looking for an advisor that has a small number of people, but has a coaching focused and an academic background or an academic focus to their investments or a rigor or what, 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 what do you mean by that? Well, I think all advisors, you know, as, as you know yourself, um, tend to try and focus their attentions to a, you know, a certain group of um, individuals. You know, we just become better if we have a niche. It means we can develop a sort of a real skill set around that niche. We, our origin is really uh, in helping, you know, fairly successful individuals and families, people who are sort of um, quite far along in their financial journey towards sort of financial independence, uh, business owners, you know, uh, successful people up toward the end of their career. That doesn't mean necessarily by age. You know, we deal with a lot of young entrepreneurs and things like that. Um, so I guess because the people we deal with and work with have often quite complicated situations to grapple with and deal with, it necessitates us having a sort of smaller number of clients rather than a much broader mm -hmm. broader range. So at least if you're in that kind of camp and you need a lot of um, structuring, uh, investment planning, financial planning, then it's probably helpful to have someone who... So what would you say when you say complexity? Because everyone's lives are complex. What is it that someone should be thinking themselves that would be looking to engage your services or just a financial planner in general, what their services? are and maybe what would be someone who might have a lot of assets but they might not need a planner do you think do you think that exists as well yeah so i mean on the, on the first one um you know in the former i think um you know we often deal with a lot of families who or individuals who've spent a lot of time abroad so they may have uh, asset bases spread all over the different you know regions that they've lived and worked yep. um that obviously have quite significant tax implications that need to be considered and dealt with um and in those situations you know we create an expert team um, utilizing advice from their accountants um, to build a structure and a framework for migrating those assets back. Yeah. Um, they may have intergenerational wealth considerations. You know, they may be sort of successful enough to be at a point where they're no longer really thinking about their own 
uh, financial plan and they're thinking about their kids and their grandkids, in which case, you know, we may look to involve the children um, or, you know, come up with a plan for dealing with, you know, the grandchildren as well. So uh, it's often we have these quite broad and complicated situations. But like you said, yeah, there are, there are some people, you know, who have um, who are quite successful, um, but may have quite, quite a sort of simple um, profile in terms of investor. You know, they're young, they're likely to be earning really well for many, many years to come. You know, they don't have any sort of really short-term liabilities. So, you know, it might just be sort of focusing on a, on a really good quality growth portfolio and contributing um, as much as they can to, toward that sort of financial independence point. Yeah. I remember um, I remember seeing a client of mine a number of years ago and they had significant assets that were left behind in South Africa as they'd left. And uh, they couldn't sell them. So what they had to do was, what, what we had to find a lawyer that was fluent in Afrikaans as in the specific language and get an African specific legal will drawn up that would cover those assets. Um, and you yeah. basically need an entire, you needed, they needed a South African based financial planning team uh, with the Australian office running the overall assets, which was an interesting scenario. Yeah, yeah. no, it could be quite complicated, can't it? Pat, so just moving forwards here, what are some of the problems you see with, with your competitors and, and maybe not so much competitors, but um, I know we were briefly just talking about the difference between the wholesale and the retail model. What, what I've seen a lot of people is, is that in our market, if your class is a wholesale investor, your assets are at a level that you're expected to be at least a level of sophistication where you can do the due diligence yourself, which means a lot of the um, protections that are afforded to retail investors are not there. Um, and it's kind of a sexy, it's a good, good sort of sounding sales pitch because you've got this wholesale certificate, wholesale investor certificate. You can go around saying, yep, cool, I can access these investments. But just in my experience, they've almost always been worse. They've always had sneaky things shoved into them. They've not been actually particularly worked that well. And there's also been quite a lot of product failure, meaning they've gone to zero. So what's, is that a similar case in NZ? I think, I think we were just touching on that before. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the, the, the case. And, and it's, um, that issue is something that we've been really championing from the private office really strongly um you know we treat all of our clients as retail clients and that means we as you say you know we have to participate in a regulatory framework that really protects the investor and actually recently there was a an example of a, a particular fund called penrich capital which was um really blew up in investors faces um and a lot of people kind of got their hands burnt in that situation you know, i think a lot of people realized that not having that i guess that retail status as a client meant they had no recourse so I think there are examples like this all over the place. Um, and it's really important that people understand the difference here. So the, the Penrith Capital Fund has four, had $400 million invested from other advisors. So other advisors were classifying their clients as wholesale, wholesale investors and putting that money into this fund. So, in, so it's, is it an Auckland-based fund? From what I understand, it was actually a Christchurch. Christchurch, yeah. Um, and it was essentially a hedge fund Um but, you know, I had actually had a, um, a friend ask me about this well before any of this sort of stuff unfolded. And I actually sort of went into some detail about um, this kind of difference between the wholesale and retail markets. And that really got us going. And from, from our perspective at the private office, we really started thinking about this a lot um, and communicating the importance of this to clients. And then obviously what happened, happened. And it's never nice to read about that, you know, that sort of thing happening to people, you know, because it was really all over Auckland and it took a lot of scalps, you know. Yeah. So it looks like, so 400 million went to look, went to zero. I, I have this, um, uh, I have this, uh, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's true and um, tried and tested, but uh, almost any, any single time anyone takes out a full page ad in the Australian Financial Review three times in a row. So for three three weeks running, that fund almost will always have liquidity or financial problems. 
Um, I've seen it time and time again, and they're always that. The reason why is it's almost an inverse correlation between how good a fund, how well a fund performs, uh, and how much money it needs to spend on marketing. So, absolutely, yeah, it couldn't be more true. I mean, it's, it's I've always thought that when you were sort of my background is in asset management, and you know, I spent a lot of time in London. I always used to see the buses drive by with the huge billboards and the huge ads, and you know, it's not until you really work in that industry where you realise well, someone's paying for that. And it's uh, it's certainly not fund managers. There's also there's also the, the the inverse of that is which is like if there's a great fund, me and you are going to know about it. We don't need to have the marketing shoved at it because we'll have done the researching screens. We'll we'll have employed the, the research houses, and then we'll have done the the due diligence guide. This is a good fund. This is going to be appropriate. So the bus, you know, the adverts on the bus or the cricket or the football or whatever it is are really targeting people at a different level. So to summarize that point, if someone gives you a if someone's coming at you saying you need to be a wholesale investor, think very carefully. Be mindful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what what is the advantage of being a wholesale investor other than someone can sort of, you know, yeah, exactly. Go. Exactly. <laughs> um Great. So just moving forward. So look, I mean, this is a pretty obvious question. I'm asking everyone this one. What what value does a financial planner really bring? I mean, this because we get this a lot, maybe more at barbecue chats, less from um, clients. Uh, but it's it's almost a point of an industry where it's like, oh my God, do we have to really keep answer, answering this question? So yeah. h- how do you respond? What is the value of a financial planner? What do they do? Well, I mean, I think if someone's asking that question, they really haven't got, typically won't ever had much experience with sitting down with a financial planner. You know, I think um, I've heard it said once that fund managers, um, their value should be measured in basis points where financial planners can be measured in percentage points. And that sort of general idea there being that and you know, a good fund manager- Can you just, just for the layman, um, describe the difference in those points? Yeah, well, I think that the key point there, I mean, a, a great example of it is um, what happened here in New Zealand with the, um, well, I suppose it was the same in Australia, but the uh, the March sell-off um, from COVID, uh, the equity markets fell, fell really drastically. And what became really apparent here is the uh, effect of the, that, that, that panic had on the New Zealand market. And that was as represented by the, you know, the degree of people that sold out of their KiwiSaver funds. They're perhaps more aggressive of KiwiSaver funds and, um, you know, in favour of either holding holding cash or into more conservative vehicles. And uh, the reality is, you know, throughout that period, um, we sort of got on the front foot and spoke to all of our clients really strongly about the importance of staying in your seat, remaining diversified. In fact, in, in majority of cases, we actually rebalanced back into equities as those equities fell, you know. Um, and that kind of discipline really rewarded our investors because obviously when the markets rebounded strongly, obviously we had no idea as to the magnitude and pace of that sort of rebound, but we were lucky enough to experience a really sharp rebound. Um, and you know, for those who sort of, as a result of fear, abandoned their strategies, um, you know, they're left sort of either in cash or in a conservative fund with a rebounded kind of equities market. So it's, it's, it's kind of in those moments yeah, it's in those moments where the value really comes. Yeah, correct. So it, it, it doesn't make any sense. But when you look at, uh, I know we're really on the edges here, but when you look at the retail flows into and out of products or out of markets, um, right, at the top, right at the top of an investment cycle, so top of 2007, top of 2001, um, that is the time when most of the money is actually flushing into the market. And right at the bottom, when things are the absolute worst, is people when is when we're pulling people out now indicatively indicatively we know not to buy bananas when they're you know if bananas are 55 dollars a kilo that's a lot of money for banana um it doesn't make sense to buy them but at the same time with retail markets the hotter they are the the more they are the 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 more money flushes into them which is kind of a mind 
warping concept to try and think about. But yeah, so by um, ISR law, right? It's the opposite of what it should be. Those capital flows, and everyone um, understands that. Everyone goes, of course, that's that's so simple. But actually, you look at the, the retail, you look at how people actually act, and they will just do that. They'll that fear. Yeah, and their capital, their capital flow data is really consistent. Just like you're saying, you look over time. It's when the markets are at all time highs. It's when most investors are purchasing equities. Now, it's that fear and greed cycle that you know a good disciplined approach will help you avoid. It kind of takes that emotion out of your investment process. All right. Continuing moving on, what's the most common money mistake that you see people even... So obviously you do, you see some successful uh, families who have got significant assets, but they're still just humans. Uh, what are some common, common money mistakes that you see them in their lives doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, ultimately it's just losing sight of the core goals. I mean, I think one of the things we do with all of our clients is sit down and have a really sort of in-depth conversation about what's really important to them, what it is that they want to achieve longer term. You know, and that could be when they want to try and achieve financial independence, when they want to retire, what they want to pass on as a legacy to the kids or the grandkids. It's very easy to lose sight of those kind of those core values and in favor of, um, you know, purchasing major assets. So often, um, you know, our role as a financial advisor is to sort of help coach people around their purchasing decisions and saying, look, the, the trade-offs, the relative trade-offs of spending this money on this new asset may mean working for a few extra years. You got to be the bad. You got to be the bad guy in the room. Sometimes, but then sometimes <laughs> it's the opposite, right? Sometimes it's you. You know, you got to spend more. You know, yeah. that's often the case as well as your. You know, the way the plan is tracking, you're going to be left with a legacy that's beyond what you wanted. You know? So it probably makes sense for you to increase your annual expenditure. So what are some of the harmful recommendations that you see in our, in our industry? The harmful recommendations? Well, I mean, I think fundamentally um, at the private office, we really support an evidence-based investment process. You know, um, So we tend to look uh, not so favorably on investment recommendations that have a, a great deal of speculation and high cost in them. Because we tend not to think, uh, for one, it actually adds value over time. It tends to destroy value. Can you be specific, uh, like around the differences? Yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, we adhere to the kind of investment philosophy that we think is backed by evidence, you know, academic rigor and research. Um, and, you know, some of the fundamental tenets of that are keeping costs low as, as low as possible in terms of asset um, management, keeping things very diversified. So, we, you know, our portfolios have something in the order. 10,000 individual companies spread around the world sometimes. Whereas sometimes people will walk in and a historic pro- product that they've purchased or been advised to buy might be a sort of high conviction stock portfolio containing you know, as little as 10 companies, you know, and because of the way they've been communicated, you know, that, that the way that portfolio has been communicated to them, you know, they're of the opinion that's diversified because there are 10 different unique stocks, you know. Um, and so, you know, we think there's a really a, a massive difference between investing and speculating. So I guess, you know, the point I'd say is where people are paying high fees for someone to speculate on their behalf, it just doesn't seem to make any sense to us. Is that because it's not backed by academic rigor or why? Yeah, I mean, just what where else in life do you pursue, you know, do you pay a professional to, um, you know, speculate for you in that regard? We use an approach that, you know, has the, maximizes the chance of you generating a positive investment experience over the long term, mitigating a lot of the risks that you know, have the potential to completely ruin your investment um, plan. Conversely, you uh, so a, a, high, a high conviction fund manager 
is exactly what Pat just described. They, they have a, a very small number of stocks. They might not hold them for very long timeframes. Um, and they're at the bleeding edge of the market and they're usually in the mid cap space. So um, not on the biggest stocks in the market, not the smallest in the middle. And they're suggesting that they can outperform the market by somehow magically figuring out that a certain business is oversold for a certain timeframe, which is extremely difficult um, and probably mathematically impossible. If you Google the SPIVA report, S-P-I-V-A report, uh, that shows you the percentage of fund managers that outperform the market. And it's almost always none or uh, depending on the time frame you look at. Uh, yeah, it's about 80% uh, after five years and pretty much every jurisdiction underperforms the chosen market. And if you look uh, so at the Canadian, interesting, just, just at the moment, the Canadian one's super interesting because it's 99% of fund managers have underperformed the index. Uh, mostly because of Shopify, which is the um, Canadian equivalent of Afterpay, which has just gone absolutely through the roof. Yeah. And actually, that all really stems from a piece of core research by um, William Sharp called The Arithmetic of Active Management. I don't know ah, if you've ever come across With the Sharp one. Ratio, I named after him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But he basically sets out in quite, you know, really simplistic, uh, rhythmic um, mathematical terms, you know, why it has to be the case that the average active manager underperforms. The passive manager, but why is you know, it? Do you have do you have, a, do you have a view on that? Yeah, well, it's just because if you you know if um, if you're looking at the collective market as a whole, and you you know think about things in terms of the bell curve, you've got you know a proportion of managers that are going to be outperforming and a proportion of managers that are underperforming. Now, if you adjust that sort of median performance, which is the market rate of return. If you adjust that by the average fees that the active managers charge, then it mathematically has to be the case that the average active managers can underperform the market. You know, it's a, a bit of a linguistic uh, sort of truism. Right. And once you once you start seeing reading that sort of research, and then you, yep. Time up. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to do another one. <laughs> Joe, we'd finish it there. We're going to pick it up there. We're going to finish this off another five minutes. Um, Pat, can you just? I'm going to close the meeting. I'll send you a new meeting invite, and we'll just go from there. I'm just going to email you another Zoom link. Sure. All right.